Check your barrels clear and that your powder is dry. It's the Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast with John and Hannah. Hi. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about firearms and gunpowder in D&D. Okay, so in this episode, we're going to be talking about gunpowder in D&D. Now, gunpowder is one of the earliest known chemical explosives. And love, I'm sure you're pretty aware of what the ingredients are. Indeed, and if you want to fight a gorn, you'll need them. Charcoal, sulphur, saltpetre, potassium nitrate. Yeah. Then you need a tube to put it in and a rock to fire. That's it, exactly. (laughs) And this was invented in the 9th century in China by Taoists. Originally, apparently, it was used for medical purposes, but it spread throughout most parts of Eurasia by like the 13th century. Well, like cauterizing wounds and that kind of thing. Yeah, and for mixing them with various powders and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Now, we know that gunpowder has been an option for Dungeons & Dragons since fairly early on in D&D to be honest uh, uh, my research showed me that Ed Greenwood who's like the, the founder of the Forgotten Realms invented Elminster that sort of thing yeah, he, we met him once he did a couple of articles about it in Dragon Magazine issue 1670 I think it was although apparently Gary Gygax the ori- one of the original creators mm-hmm. of D&D wasn't really a fan of it because he didn't like the combination of like science and fantasy and he even wrote a letter saying that in um, Dragon Magazine issue 66 mm-hmm now, before we go any further talking about gunpowder, I just want to make it clear that we're talking about sort of early firearms and uses of gunpowder in this game, so like flintlocks and stuff like that. Yeah, rather than talking about the sort of modern fantasy settings, you're looking at your flintlocks and your muskets and Yeah, that exactly. Sort of level. So, like we said, gunpowder's been an option in D&D for quite some time, but it doesn't ever really seem to have like embraced the concept so the fifth edition dungeon master's guide has got some rules for like firearms and stuff like that eh? but it's never really been sort of embraced by the mm-hmm. core rules of D. and the first time i ever encountered a version of D that seemed to sort of embrace firearms and gunpowder was lamentations of the flame princess which although it has an appendix covering it so it's still an appendix it's sort of a fairly substantial part of the book and it devotes a decent amount of words to it Uh, didn't we have a game that was sort of musketeer themed at some point quite possibly i don't recall Uh, the exact title i'm sure we did yeah i I vaguely remember doing a DD game that was very much about being a musketeer and quite possibly obviously the musket that comes with it but yeah. I don't think any of us actually used our muskets throughout the entire game. I think everybody just used a sword because sword fights are cool. Yeah, I mean, if that does ring a bell. I can't think of the exact name of the game. But certainly I think firearms as well, like gunpowder firearms, like flintlocks or whatever, mm. they lend towards a more swashbuckly sort of game, don't they? You think of like the pirates with their pistols and stuff like that. So there certainly are versions of D&D out there that you can find that sort of touch on firearms and gunpowder more but like I say Lamentations of the Flame Princess was the first game that's a version of D&D that I felt really embraced it so with that in mind here's a few things that you should just sort of keep in the back of your head if you're planning on using gunpowder in games so 
unless you're using a magical version of it, which I think Forgotten Realms did. I think they called it like smoke powder and like gnomes or dwarves invented it. Mm-hmm. But you had to have like magic to make yeah, it's it. It's an alchemical thing. That's right, yeah. So unless you use that, you're saying that science functions in an understandable way in your fantasy world. Yeah, you're also saying that science is at a level where they can understand it. Or you're saying that religion is at a point where enough people have stolen the religious secrets of the magic powder to be able to put them into a weapon. Yeah, quite. Another thing to keep in mind is that if firearms are common, then certain types of armour, certainly metal Mm armour, that are commonplace in your traditional D&D game, they become less useful and they may fall out of fashion entirely because obviously muskets can go through like plate armour. And the way Lamentations gets around this is... Any of you, if you're using firearms, any of your more traditional antiquated armors cost a double because they're they're antiques, they're collector's pieces, they're not being mm-hmm. made anymore. But instead, it substitutes like pikeman's armor and like buff coats and stuff like that. So it it upgrades a little bit, and it's not necessarily a bad thing that you change that because it gives your game a bit more of a unique look. But you do need to keep that in mind. I mean, whilst you might be thinking in a traditional faux medieval game. Oh, I want to get myself that badass suit of plate mail for my paladin because it's going to make me like invincible. Some fool like totters up with a musket and gets a shot in on you. Yeah, plate mail's not much help when you're getting shot at. No, exactly. <laughs> now, as we were saying earlier, campaigns with gunpowder tend to evoke a more sort of Renaissance-leaning feel mm-hmm. than your typical sort of quasi-medieval settings prevalent in D and D, or a more sort of swashbuckly like buccaneer style. Mm-hmm. vibe and i don't think that's a particularly bad thing but it's obviously up to you and your group to decide whether that's the particular flavor of game you want well yeah this is i think the reason that it hasn't really taken off in D, that a lot of people just don't want that level of technology in their D game they want a medieval fantasy world not a early industrial fantasy world yeah i mean i I think that's why they don't really take off yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean i think the default assumption of your typical DD game is it's a sort of faux medieval world and obviously firearms and gunpowder and flintlocks and stuff like that they're from a later period so you have to contort a sort of medieval world to make it feel medieval and still sort of get firearms in, which is obviously what Forgotten Realms did, or we'll make it a magical thing rather than a science thing so we can sort of squeeze it in and still have it look a bit like a sort of medieval world if you turn the lights off and you squint a little bit. So another thing about gunpowder is if it's widely available and it's known, it Mm. puts a powerful if unstable element in the hands of the masses without them having to use magic. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about your standard D&D game, often magic, even though you cannot like, learn it if you're a mage, often you need some sort of like innate talent that sort of limits magic. So, you know, if like only one in every 100 people has the talent for magic, that limits the amount of wizards you've got. And your average peasant, if they could read, could pick up a magic book, read it all day long, and still not be a wizard. But if you give anyone enough training, they can pick up a flintlock and they can shoot it. So you're effectively saying that instead of a mob of peasants with pitchforks, you get a mob of peasants with firearms that are a lot more dangerous. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's really well covered in 
one of the Terry Pratchett books, although I can't remember which one. It might be Feet of Clay. It's definitely one of the Sam Vimes ones. Okay. Where the Discworld has had guns for thousands of years. They were invented, like, thousands of years ago in their city, but they've been repressed by the Magicians and the Assassin's Guild. Yeah, I can see Who've that. basically gone, oh, if any old person has this power, then we don't have all of this power, so we're not going to let anyone have a chance to get at it. And, yeah, the, he talks a lot more about that sort of idea... Well, that's it. If you think about it like this, if you're a mage and you get hold of like a, a magic missile wand or something, and you come in and you're like, brap, 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 magic missiles all day long, mm-hmm. that's a magical thing and it seems fantastical. Whereas if like any old person can effectively sort of do the same thing, okay, it's not as reliable, there's a lot more sort of technology and technical wizardry involved rather than actual wizardry, but it sort of elevates technology and brings it a little bit closer to the stuff you can do with magic in a traditional D&D game. So I think a lot of it depends on how much you want to sort of blur those lines, really. See, another thing to think about how you're including them in your game world is how did they actually get there in the first place? It's true. Because, I mean, if they were invented 100 years ago by some military and then they equipped all of their soldiers with them by now probably they're all over the world and everybody could get access to one if they like really tried yeah and much as we've seen in the history of the real world once one nation realized hey this stuff's pretty useful for fighting people Mm -hmm. other nations like i've got to get me some of that and it soon spread all around the world and quickly outpaced some other modes of warfare. So even if you just go, oh, a small island nation in my D&D world's discovered gunpowder, if they use it against anyone else, soon everyone's going to want to get hold of it. And if you've got lots of learned people working towards it and science works in an understandable way, sooner or later someone else is going to come up with it as well. Exactly. So if you take your soldiers onto a battlefield with Mm -hmm. any kind of a new weapon then as soon as some of those soldiers get killed by the enemy, your new weapon is available to the enemy. Pretty much, yeah. At which point you're going to want to share it with your allies and then they're going to use it against their enemies and so on and so forth. And it's everywhere. And it's the same with any kind of technology, but particularly with these kind of weapons because you start with, like, the fireworks and then everybody's got fireworks and then you've got cannons, everybody's got cannons and it spreads. Uh, And also, obviously, it can spread by trade as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, think of how many, like, places like the British Empire, like, supplied with guns. Another sort of thing about that is that once gunpowder and science exist, you're going to get people experimenting with it and Mm -hmm. innovating with it and trying to make new inventions. Because as soon as someone goes, oh, all my nation's got a gun, someone, some scientist in another nation is going to be, well, I'm going to make a bigger gun. Mm -hmm. Also, when you get to that sort of level of gun technology, it brings with it a lot of other technology. Because to be able to make that rifle barrel, Mm. even one like the ones in Sharp, you need an industrial system behind that yeah, it's quite to true. make a uniform 
parts that's that, that like the board ones together. where it sort of like spins it round uh, yeah like I, I think that's the ones that sharp uses it might be introduced through the books i don't know i didn't read sharp i just like the sean bean series <laughs> but but that whole thing of the industry that's required to make guns brings with it a lot of other industry yeah. and again at that point is it still D&D or is it a sort of renaissance story rather than fantasy yeah i mean i think it, absolutely right as you say these things don't occur in a vacuum uh, so technology and innovation it when you get to like a big invention it's normally like one step at the end of a series of steps leading mm-hmm. up to it so like you say you've got to have people to make the various parts of it people to study the the ballistics of it and stuff like that whole new fields of science that can be developed and studied so it's just do you want to introduce this to your world and i'm not saying you have to think about it in great detail but it's it's worth keeping in the back of your mind by the same token if you didn't want it to be freely available all over your world i could see how like some cult of assassins or some like cult of a god of war or a god of um forge that kind of thing might be able to come up with this technology and keep it just for them um maybe that's actually what wizards are in your world and everybody just thinks wizards have access to magic because they point at you with their wand and you're dead there's also the idea of We've seen in a few fantasy things of the, the sort of isolationist nation, mm-hmm. like the sort of technologically superior nation, but that like keeps like a, an almost dictatorial control within its own borders and doesn't treat with people outside the borders unless mm-hmm. it's conquering them. So maybe you could say, oh, like you were saying, love, maybe they keep a tight lock on their technology, but yeah. they send people out to kill people. I hate to say it, but that'd sort of get to be a bit much uh, British colonial. Yeah, D&D. Uh, and b- b- by no means are we saying you have to do this, but <laughs> it's all stuff worth considering. So, to, to bring it back to D and D on a sort of on a sort of rules level, another thing mm. you have to decide about is what classes are proficient with these weapons. So obviously, mm. we know certain classes, certain races are particularly good with certain weapons. Who's going to be able to use the the firearms? Now, you could say, oh yeah, it's the fighter because the fighter's good with every weapon. But can a ranger use a rifle for like hunting or whatever? We know rifles are used for hunting. You, you've got to consider this. I mean, if you're not using a game with like defined proficiencies, it's not an issue. But And then it becomes about whether the fact that the firearms are a great leveller between so many different like D&D groups, including your wizards, your assassins guild, yeah. whatever. If your firearms are there to be a leveller, then... You need to give them the same to every class and race. Yeah, th- there's a, a concept in D and D that I don't know if you've heard of, like niche mm. protection, mm. and 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 it's roughly the idea of that each class in D and D has their thing that they are good at. So you don't really want to have other classes that are also good at that thing because then they're not needed. So if you have a cleric, death thing mainly in sort of traditional D and D, they're the healers. So if you bring in another class that is as good at healing as the cleric and can also do other stuff, why would anyone play a cleric? Yeah. It is the idea. I'm not saying I completely agree with it. But as you were saying, if firearms is like a leveller between non-magic users and magic users, if anyone can like fire blasts of sort of fire that can do damage, 
is that taken away from the wizards class or are the limitations of firearms in your rule systems enough to make sure that doesn't happen so you've heard us talking about all those like potential pitfalls of firearms why would you actually use them in your D&D game now i'm going to say first of all as a bit of a disclaimer i'm an unashamed fan of using like flintlocks and um gunpowder in games and the r- real reason for me is as hannah was saying i love the sharp tv series as well <laughs> and i think such weapons are great fun and i'd love to i'd pretty much include them in every game if i could and i don't find them too sort of upsetting of the game balance because early firearms are quite temperamental you've got to light your little cord put it in you've got to keep your powder dry the ranges normally affect the accuracy they don't deal well with the damp they take ages to reload and there's all these other limiting factors so the way i see it is magic is still more reliable you know you pull out your wand you say the word zap You've not mm. got to stand there like loading your powder in and making sure it's dry and like ramrodding it down and putting your little, well, whatever they call it, the little fuse thing in. Yeah, so a big part of this when you're like choosing to put them in your game is gauging which firearms you're using exactly. Yeah. As you say, your flintlocks and your muskets aren't going to have a big effect on your overall setting initially, whereas. If you're putting rifles in there straight away, yes, that's going to change your world. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to because we talked about the Lamentations of the Flame Princess firearms appendix, and as an example of what I consider for me to be like the sweet spot of stuff to include in a D&D game, still capturing that flavour of like early firearms, but having enough limitations so that it doesn't overpower everything else. I'm just going to give you a list of a few things that are in this appendix. So for firearms, there's a pistol, an arquebus, and a musket. You can get a bandolier with like 12 shots of powder. Mm-hmm. You can get a firebomb, which is like a small sort of explosive. You can buy your gunpowder, like your match cord for your for lighting it. Powder horns, like scatter shot, obviously gunpowder with ball bearings in it, and stuff like that. And the way it deals with it in here is it describes a couple of different methods of firing. So your match lock, where like a lit match is secured in a clamp, and when you pull the trigger, it drops the match down into a small amount of fine gunpowder. That lights that, which lights the course of gunpowder, forces the bullet out of the barrel. Happy days. And it also gives you additional rules for like wheel locks, where a wheel spins around, ignites it, and flint locks, where they use a small piece of flint instead of a match. Mm-hmm. And the basic rules, match locks are assumed to be the most common in yeah. Lamentation of the Flame Princess. <clears throat> um, yeah. And uh, they use the following rules. They take 10 rounds to reload, although it says 8 rounds for fighters, so obviously fighters are better at using them. Um, so... Let's face it, how many combats do you play in D&D that go for more than 10 rounds? Too many, but not often. <laughs> so certainly when I've used these rules in games, people will tend to snap off one or two shots, and that's mm. it. That's all the use you get out of them. So occasionally you'll get a really good shot with one, and you'll be like, oh yeah, I'll like nail that guy with the, with the match lock. But most of the time their impact isn't that great. They get double the usual range penalties at medium and long range. So shooting someone in the distance, forget it. It's not going to happen. 
they've got a two in ten chance of misfiring, and then you have to spend like three rounds clearing it before you can load it again because like the powder's got wet or whatever. If it's damp condition, so it's raining or whatever, the chance of misfiring's doubled. Um, and the benefits are they ignore five points of armor at short range, so anyone you close up can you like fire through your metal armor. But my favourite thing is the discharge of a firearm causes an immediate morale check for all enemy characters and creatures with a morale of seven or less. So when I've used them, I've found the main, <laughs> the best way to use them in Lamentations, in my view, is you bust out the match locks at the start of the combat, you fire off your first few shots, and it doesn't really matter whether you hit anything or not, because the best thing about them is it makes... It makes certain enemies make a morale check. So mm. if you're lucky and they fail the check, you might not have to get into a combat with them. You fire off the firearms, there's loud bangs, there's smoke, smell of like gunpowder. The enemy like, forget this, and they run for it, which in an OSR game like Lamentations, where combat can be quite lethal, that's the, the more you can avoid getting into random combats, the better, to be perfectly honest. So... I often find that they're they're better for that rather than the pure amount of damage they can inflict because all it takes is it to be raining or you to roll a misfire and you're like, all right, well, that's done. And you've either got to carry more pistols and more firearms so you can just like drop that and pull out another one or you've got to spend like 10 rounds reloading it, which probably isn't going to happen in most cases. Now, something that I noticed when you're going through that list of things that are available yeah. that does need consideration if you're including this in your campaign is things like firebombs and yeah. uh, other things because you know the second you tell a group of D&D players that there is a barrel of gunpowder one of them is going to suggest lighting the whole barrel on fire. Now I don't know enough about actual gunpowder to know what the result would be, but I suspect it would not be anywhere near as spectacular as said D&D players are hoping. The thing is, I think, to be honest, it depends on how much of a problem you see that as. Because <laughs> if, if I, if I like, said, oh, there's some barrels of gunpowder there, I would not say there was gunpowder there without expecting the players to blow it up. And this is why I'm saying make sure you prepare for it and consider yeah. it. It's going to happen if you put gunpowder in your game. True. Even if you make it, like, the most expensive substance in the game world, by level five, the players will be able to afford it in as much quantity as they want. Yeah, and I mean, I think in terms of the firebombs in Lamentations of the Flame Princess, they only do, like, 1d4 damage. The The main benefit of them is they ignite flammable materials, but also if you roll a missile, it blows up in your hands. So they're mm. quite temperamental... And your main use of them is like to quickly set a fire. Like you're not going to be blowing up a whole building with it, but if you're like, I oh, need to set a fire to that barn, you could mess around with your flint and tinder. But if you've got a firebomb, and off you go, you're good to go. It takes far less time. But if you roll that misfire, it's blowing up in your hand and probably taking a couple of fingers off. So again, it's checks and balances to like stop it from being overpowered. So one of the other advantages, I think, of early firearms, and we twitched on this a little bit earlier, is they give you a way of upping the threat level of like a low-level encounter mm-hmm. without just throwing loads of magic in. Because, let's face it, if you... And I'm just going to use a random example I'm putting on my head. Let's say you've got a group of bandits attacking the player characters, fairly low-level stuff, and you go, oh, these bandits are... I'd really thought the players were going to bump into them like a level or two ago. They're just going to walk all over them. I want to make it a bit spicier in combat. 
So you could go, oh, I'm going to give them some lesser magical items. However, what's probably going to happen is the players are going to kick their asses, hoover up all those magic items, mm. and then you've just got more powerful players. However, if you give a few of these bandits like primitive firearms, granted the players can still hoover them up, but it's not like they couldn't just buy firearms. But it, And your, your bandits might only get one or two shots off with them, but you can bet if the players are like romping towards the bandits with their weapons drawn and they see a few of them pull out like muskets, it's going to give them pause for thought. And they might just get off one or two shots that maybe do a little bit more damage, but it just ups the threat level a bit without tipping the the sort of rewards for like getting rid of those bandits over into like the ridiculous magic level. Mm. So my final pro for using primitive firearms is that if you use the Lamentations of the Flame Princess firearms rules, which, as I've said, I really love. I think they're great. And you can get a free version of this on RPG without the art. Then firing one, as we've said earlier, means that low morale enemies are going to have to make a check and... It, it's just morale is like an underused mechanic. Now this in a lot actually of D&D strikes games. me as another reason why you might not want them in D and D, because most of your like undead foes are not going to be particularly hurt by firearms, and they're not going to be all that bothered by the morale check thing. Because most of them have got effectively no intelligence, so they don't have morale in that way. Yeah, and I think one of the things we tend to notice in sort of more firearms-heavy, let's say for argument's sake, settings in D&D, is that they tend to lead to having more human enemies mm. and more sort of intelligent enemies yeah. rather than sort of like more monstrous things. But, but for me, I love the fact that it brings morale checks sort of more centrally into the game because often it's a mechanic that just like gets ignored or doesn't even really factor in whereas I think it's a really interesting thing I mean how many we're talking about long D&D fights earlier in the episode how many times have you been in a D&D fight you've been fighting bandits or whatever and you've like you've massacred your way through half of them and the rest of them are just sort of like robotically fighting onwards yeah and you're like really if, if, I, if I'd seen like half my mates killed like that I would be heading for the hills See, that's another one of those fiddly little mechanics that you just forget about when you've been slogging out of combat for half an hour. And I suspect that the um, computer programs that are being brought in, things like Roll20s, various different suites, that remember all of these checks, will make that sort of mechanic a lot more used and a lot more useful well i I think in in my opinion part of the reason it tends to get forgotten is it's a little bit woolly sort of where you should make morale checks and it's a little bit sort of oh you could make one here you might make one here but it's not like a definite guide whereas with the the lamentations firearms or you know that every time someone fires with a firearm successfully you got to make that morale check so it's all Mm -hmm. there in black and white there's no debated it you just do it so i think that would help to make it not fade into the background as much which Mm. i'm a fan of because i think the mechanic itself is quite good yeah you're right it is a underused mechanic and there is a certain element of uh, stupidity to a group who when half of them are already dead continuing to attack so have you got anything else you want to say about firearms or gunpowder in games just that 
this is sort of I don't know I think once you add gunpowder to a game it's not immediately a D&D game anymore because as you say uh, for the same reason that they're bringing more human enemies you then anytime you come up against something that's like a big gribbly monster you're going to shoot it in the face and it's going to be dead or you're going to shoot it and it, the loud noise will scare it away. Whereas if you signed up for, like, D&D, you expect there to be a certain amount of that dungeon crawling and that monster fighting and stuff. You expect there to be a certain amount of that medieval tavern and things. And all the stuff that guns do doesn't work for that. So by that point, is it D&D anymore, even though it's using the same mechanics? See, I would say I, I don't agree that it's not D&D. And the, the reason I say that is because <laughs> way back as far as, like, second ed, AD&D, they bought out a series of books called, like, those like the Complete Necromancer's Handbook, and then they did a historical series of books. And there were options for using firearms and other sort of special weapons in that. So I think it's been an option in D&D for, for quite some time. So I don't think it makes it not D&D. But I can certainly can see that it makes it not typical D and D, because I, I agree with you. Most people who sort of like rock up to a D and D game, they'll expect it to be faux medieval, sorcery, swords, monsters, taverns, as you were saying. So I think if you are going to introduce firearms into like a D and D game or run a D and D game that features them, you need to make sure your players are certainly aware of that from the start and sort of have an idea of how that's going to affect your game. And as we've, we've said loads on the podcast, it comes down to like having a discussion with your players, making sure they're happy with it, and that you're happy with it, and that you all know what you're getting in terms of your game. Yeah. So, unless you've got anything else... Guns are bad, okay? Indeed. So, with that bombshell, we're going to wrap up this episode we hope you've got something out of this if you want to call in and tell us whether you agree or disagree whether you love whether you hate firearms in dnd i can practically hear rob davis chomping at the bit to tell me how much he hates firearms then you can leave us a voicemail message using speakpipe there's a link in the description below or you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com until we see you next time Take care, stay safe, keep gaming, and watch out for those guns. <laughs> Bye.